Well, I also want to welcome you today, those attending uh, here at our 930 Cornerstone service, those in the well, in the well cafe this morning. Uh, if we have not met, my name is David. If we have met, I need to explain something to you because I know you, uh, you can see something and you recognize something and you're wondering, you have questions, where is this newfound wisdom and maturity that we see in David today? Uh, it is the result of the fact that I am now an adult. An adult. Uh, I turned 40 on uh, Wednesday, so I'm, I'm old. Officially old. That's what my daughter said to me. Uh, so many have said to me, I, I do not know why you're clapping, but uh, thank you for, uh, uh, for that. Uh, when I was a kid, I used, to, I used to hate that my birthday always fell on spring break. You know, well, you're not at school. No one can celebrate your birthday. Man, I love that my birthday is now on spring break. It was so quiet around here. It was so low-key. Someone yesterday said, hey, did anyone decorate your yard on Wednesday morning? And I was like, no, no one did that. And she was like, oh, I really wanted to put these huge buzzards that we have in our garage in your yard. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry that you weren't able to do that. The only person who wasn't just completely nice to me was my brother. Uh, my brother and, and family came over Friday night. Uh, and the gift that he felt like was the most appropriate thing to celebrate his older brother turning 40, which, bad idea, like, if you're right behind me, what, what are you doing? But uh, he, he gave me a Golden Girls shir shirt. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and I remember saying to him, why did you spend money on this? I will never put this on my body. But evidently the laughs were enough for him. So again, if you're wondering, what, what is this? I'm old enough to be your senior pastor now, so that's, that's, uh, that's what it is. We've been working through the book of Mark, and I want to invite you today uh, to turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 is going to be our passage for today. Uh, you'll find uh, that in the Blue Bible that we have available for you in all of our worship spaces on uh, page 1575. I'd love for you to have that open, because uh, we're going to look at several other sections of Mark uh, before we get to Mark chapter 10, and I want you to see the fullness uh, of this passage uh, as we continue today. Uh, this week, if you've been following along with the reading plan that we shared with you, uh, you read from Mark 9 verses 14 uh, through the end of chapter 10. We'll pick up in chapter 11 uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, and, and over the course of just a few short chapters, Mark shares a lot of the story. There's too many details for us to, uh, to review today, but there are a few important moments that I want to point out to you because of the way that they connect uh, to our passage for today, but also because they represent a shifting focus in the story that Mark is sharing about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I want to first take you back to Mark chapter 8. Uh, Jesus has traveled uh, to an area known as Caesarea Philippi. If you remember last week, we talked about the majority of Jesus' ministry took place in the area surround, uh, really the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Not a very big uh, piece of land when you consider the magnitude of the teaching, the healing that happened in that place, but that's where most of his ministry took place. He's traveled north to Caesarea Philippi, uh, really beyond the boundaries of where the Jewish people lived at that time. And in Caesarea Philippi is where Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? Uh, and, and after a little bit of dialogue, it's Peter uh, who declares, you are the Messiah. He's the first person in the gospel to say this. And Jesus, after this incredible proclamation 
uh, from one of his disciples, you're the Messiah. This is how Jesus follows uh, that proclamation. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And in response to this, Peter, remember, this is the guy who just said, you're the Messiah. Uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Which, by the way, just a suggestion. If you go from you are the Messiah to now let me rebuke the Messiah, not a good idea. That's what Peter chooses to do. And in response, Jesus rebukes him back, saying, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And then he says this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is the first time this has come up in the gospel. The first prediction that Jesus has shared of what will eventually happen at the end of his life. Now again, that's about halfway through the 8th chapter of Mark. If you jump forward about a chapter uh, to the middle of Mark chapter 9, uh, here's what you find. Uh, they left that place and passed through Galilee. So they were in Caesarea Philippi in the north. They've now come south to the area uh, surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know what they were doing because he was teaching his disciples. And here's what he's saying. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days he will rise. So here's number two. Uh, Mark 8, about halfway through, we hear this first prediction. Uh, Mark 9, about halfway through, he does it again. And in response, this is what happened. Uh, the disciples did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Uh, so uh, again, once, twice, Jesus has now predicted this is what's going to happen uh, at the end uh, at the end of, of this story. So we jump to uh, uh, forward another uh, chapter. Uh, we jump to about the middle of chapter 10 where our passage begins today. Uh, and this is what uh, the beginning of verse 32 says. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. So I want to point out just a few things to you for you to notice. I want you to notice first the movement. Again, most of the ministry of Jesus was in the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. He's then traveled further north to Caesarea Philippi. It's the first time that someone has declared that he is the Messiah, the first time that he's predicted how his life will end. He travels south, returning to the area around the Sea of Galilee, and he predicts that again. And now we get to halfway through 10 and what we realize, Jesus is on his way to, to Jerusalem. So he has continued the journey south. And, and what's the big deal about Jesus coming to Jerusalem? Well, if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, uh, we were introduced to some of the adversaries of Jesus, those who were disturbed by what he was doing and, and what he was teaching. And we even found that the adversaries of Jesus, uh, the different groups who were concerned about him, had started plotting together to undermine his ministry and potentially have him killed. Mark, Mark chapter 6, we're reminded that the adversaries of Jesus actually have some, uh, some pretty significant power and authority. When we learn that the cousin of Jesus, the one who prepared the way for him, John the Baptist, has been murdered at their hands. And what is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the center of their power. So most of the ministry of Jesus was spent on the fringes 
speaking and teaching and healing those who were the most desperate of those living within uh, the, the area of Israel at the time. But now Jesus has made a decision to go to the very center of power of those who oppose him. The same people who Jesus has said two times already he will eventually be handed over to uh, the same people who he has said twice already will eventually take his life. So the disciples were astonished. Those who followed were afraid. Uh, what, this note, what, what's, what's the meaning of it? Well, they know where he's going. Uh, and with this journey, there's this question of what will this mean? What's going to happen to Jesus? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to us? So, so listen to how Jesus follows this up. If you look at, at the end of verse uh, 32, moving into verse 33, uh, the disciples are astonished. Those who followed were afraid. He took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Uh, look at verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, this was obvious. There wasn't like multiple routes here. They know where they're going, but Jesus begins by saying, I don't want you to in any way be confused. This is what's happening. We're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, you today, as we uh, think about the life of the church, if you were here at the beginning of the service, you heard of uh, the announcements about what's coming next. Uh, you know, uh, many of you know that next week we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday weekend, the, uh, the reminder of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the crowds greeting him, waving palm branches, shouting hallelujah. You know that that's going to be followed by Holy Thursday, a remembrance of the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. You know what happens the next day. We remember the crucifixion of Jesus. And you know what happens after that, right? That's the big day. That's the day you all dress up really nicely. That's the day you make your young kid, uh, your young boy wear the zip-up tie, right? That's the day when everything is beautiful and gorgeous and we're so excited and we celebrate and we blow the doors off the place because we celebrate Easter. What we know is the end of the story. And because we know that's coming and we can see that coming because you've been through the grocery store and you've seen that the Reese's peanut butter cups, they're not cups anymore, they're eggs, which means there's more peanut butter inside because that's the best way to celebrate that Jesus is risen, right? You, you know all these things are happening. It would be easy for you at this point just to breeze past this. And forget that though you know, these disciples didn't know. They didn't know what was going to come next. They, they didn't know what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. And not only did they not know, they actually had a wholly different expectation of what the Messiah would in fact do. And so if you go all the way back to chapter 8, when, G when, when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, his expectation of what that really meant for him was radically different from everything that Jesus had been talking about. Which is why the 
first thing Peter does in response to that is try to rebuke Jesus. It's why in chapter 9 we read that the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. No one really wants to ask him. And it's also why, it's also a great explanation for what comes next. So look at verse 35. This is immediately following Jesus saying, they'll mock him, they'll spit on him, they'll flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise, verse 35. Then James and John... The sons of Zebedee came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is starting out really well, isn't it? Jesus has got to be thinking, oh, what is going to happen next? He replies, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup? I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. By the way, the cup in the Old Testament is is an allusion to suffering. And baptism, uh, you you may know, is is an allusion to to going down into death, being being, uh, rising up into into new life. What did James and John, the disciples of Jesus, how they respond to this significant question? They say, sure, we can do that. No big deal. Give me the cup. Take the baptism. I'm on it. Jesus said, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the 10 heard about this, the other 10 disciples, they were indignant with James and John, probably because they were thinking, I really want to sit the right or the left with Jesus in glory. Jesus called them together and this is what he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be, become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So again, not one time, not two times, three times. Three times Jesus has made it abundantly clear. We are going to Jerusalem. And this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be turned over to his adversaries. He's going to be mocked and flogged and eventually killed. And it's at this moment where James and John remember, oh, that's right, we've been meaning to ask him this question. Uh, Sorry, can I excuse you? Uh, Can I interrupt for just a moment? Uh, We want to sit at your right and your left in your your glory. (laughs) Do, do Do you see the massive disconnect between what Jesus has now said over and over again and the mindset of where the disciples are as they head towards Jerusalem. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just say, well, I guess they're going to figure it out in the end. He doesn't just say, well, we'll wait for it to, to get there and then, and, and then it'll all make sense to them. Jesus, Jesus has to address this with them. James and John are convinced that they are on the path that will ultimately lead to unbelievable success and overwhelming glory. And Jesus is the only one that knows how wrong they are. But he doesn't leave it at that. Notice how he layers in this teaching because Jesus knows to not understand where he was heading, 
meant that they also could not understand where they would have to go. And so here's what he says. He says, you know how the Gentiles work. You know how the rulers work. You know how they work because we've been in, we've been in Galilee and you've seen the effects of their leadership. You've seen thousands come out desperate for hope because they have a leadership that has abandoned them, that has oppressed them, that has ruled over them and used them for their own good. You know the way of the world. You can see it all around you. You know the effects of that. You know the way in which people are living in oppression. They're living in desperation because there are those who have power and those who don't. You know, in other words, Jesus says, the way of the world. You know the way of the world is demanding your own way. You know, the way of the world is a way of manipulation and coercion and control. You know, the way of the world is all about consolidating power so that you can use it for your own good. You know that the way of the world is, is you got to look out for number one because nobody else is going to do that. You got to take care of yourself first. The way of the world is assuming that you cannot give anyone an inch because you know what they'll want, right? They're going to want a mile. You know that the way of the world would say, you should only do for others what they have already shown you they are willing to do for you. You know that the way of the world is living a guarded life where dishonesty and falsehood, those are things that we excuse, assuming that that's just how you have to work things if you're going to avoid discomfort or hurt or pain. You know that the way of the world is the way of divisiveness, of, of seeing the world in two categories. There's people over here who are like us and there's people over here who, uh, that, that's, that's them. You know that the way of the world is a, is a way that assumes, the, uh, a way that understands, the central understanding is that, well, if some are gonna win, well, that just means that some are gonna lose. And that's just... That's just how the world works. And Jesus takes this moment right here to remind them, not so with you. That's not how I have lived among you. That's not how you've seen me exhibit the, my, the, the qualities of the Father. That's, that's, not, that's not what we have been about. And it can't be what you will be about. The way of the world is not your way. Your way is the way of the cross. Again, remember what he says all the way back in chapter 8. If you want to save your life, well, that's actually the best way to lose it. But, but whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel, that's, that's actually the way that you say, but unbelievable success and overwhelming glory, it's so attractive. But there is no Easter without Good Friday. There is no Christ without the cross. There is no life with Christ, no life in Christ that is not grounded in the cross of Christ. And, and so Jesus takes advantage of the moment because, because for Jesus this is so important that the cross is more than an episode in the story. The cross is the way you live to follow Jesus. It's more than something that he was going to have to endure so that we could get to the good part. 
It is the expression of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus knows for his disciples and he knows still today for you and me that we are so ready and tempted to treat it like a moment that we just have to get through so that we can get to the end of the story. That for many of us, when we think about the cross, we, uh, we sort of think about it the way my, my nine-year-old son still watches movies, uh, which is to hide his face and say, Dad, tell me when this part is over. Uh, or, or, or even in the middle of that, uh, not the newest Star Wars movie, but the last one, you know, when uh, the guys on the, uh, you know, the walkway, I don't know why they're always on walkways where they're going to fall into the abyss, but that's kind of fun, I guess. And he's got his dad there, and I don't want to spoil anything, but it's been out for like 16 years, so hopefully you've seen it. And he, <laughs> my, my son leaves the room, and he says, Dad, just tell me when this part's over, because <laughs> I want to get to the end of the story. And that's the temptation when we think about the cross. We just want to hide our eyes. We want to, we want to get past it. We want, to move, we want to move beyond it and treat it like it's just an episode. It's just a moment. It's just something that Jesus has to get through so that we can get to the party. But at this moment, Jesus takes advantage of the opportunity to remind them it's more than that. It's more than that. The cross is the way you live to follow Jesus. Not the way of the world, not the way of those uh, all around you, not the way that you see others living each and every day, not the way that you are so very tempted to live because it looks easier. It's not nearly as difficult. It's not, uh, in our own minds, it doesn't require near the amount of sacrifice. It speaks, the way of the world speaks into our fears and our worries and our concerns, saying, you got to take care of yourself. And it is so opposed to what we know is the way of the cross. And so on our journey, as we look ahead to all that is to come, here's what I want to invite you to think about today. I want to invite you to think about what is the immediate application of that teaching in your life today? Where in your life do you find yourself tempted to live according to the way of the world rather than the way of the cross? You might think about it this way. You might break it down to the different contexts of your life, some situations that you may be going through right now, or even to think about it in the category of the relationships of your life. And as you think about those, let me just invite you to consider a few questions. Is there a place in your life where as we walk with Jesus to Jerusalem, as we walk through the season of Lent, you would hear Christ call you to die? Is there an addiction in your life that needs to die? Is there an attitude that has developed in your life that needs to die? An attitude that you have towards others or an attitude that maybe even you have towards yourself that Christ would say, this is one of the places that needs to die.
Maybe it's a sense of entitlement that has been nurtured in your life because we live in a world that lives in such a dramatically different way. And as you move with Jesus to Jerusalem, he would say again, this is something that needs to die. Is there a place in your life that you have prevented Christ to be Lord of that category of your life? Is Christ the Lord of your mind? Or have you in your own way of thinking thought, well, this isn't that big a deal. Everyone else tends to think this way. Everyone else is looking out for number one, why shouldn't I? Everyone else talks this way or thinks this way, so why isn't it okay for me? Is Christ the Lord of your mind? Is Christ the Lord of your speech? Does the Lordship of Christ and the way of the cross define what you will and you will not say about others in your workplace, about your spouse or your children? Or, or, or someone who, maybe you heard that story and boy, you'd love to say it because it sounds really juicy. Is, Lord, is Christ the Lord of every word that comes out of your mouth? Is, is Christ Lord of the attitude and behavior that you have when you show up in, in those close relationships, when you show up in work? Is he Lord of the attitude and behavior that defines the, the way in which you're living in your, in your marriage? The way in which you're raising and uh, perhaps living in relationship with your older children? Is Christ the Lord there? Or are you living the way of the world rather than the way of the cross? Is there a situation in your life right now, it may be really difficult it may be really challenging. You, you may find yourself really wanting to think about looking out for number one, taking care of yourself first. And, and, and what you might be challenged to think about is what does it look like to live the way of the cross? Is there a significant decision that's on the horizon and you might just need to think about that decision in a different way? A vision of what your life will be or what your life will be about or where your life is, what it's become a specific relationship, is there someone in your life that God would lay on your heart today this conviction, I need to love them in a more sacrificial way? And is it possible that it's not the person that you only see on Tuesday or Thursday, but the person who you share life with every single day? Here's what I want you to notice. If you look back at Verse 32 and verse 33. I want you to notice that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's the one who's leading the way, right? That's where he is committed to go. And at this point in the story, this is the question we got to ask. Do we really want to go with him? Because the crowds of chapter 6, those are beginning to fade and as Jesus walks through that final week of his life, Jesus walks into the places of his own life where he was left abandoned. Do we really want to follow Jesus? And if we do, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Is there someone here today that needs to surrender? 
That's what the way of the cross looks like in your life. It's about surrender. It's about saying, I want to surrender to you, God, the anger that I'm feeling in my life right now. The anger that I feel towards a person or situation or just where I am in my life right now. I'm going to surrender that because I'm holding on to it, living the way of the world, and you've called me to live the way of the cross. Is there someone who needs to apologize to follow the way of the cross? To say those words that may be really hard to say, but the words that will bring into you a fresh understanding of God's grace and God's love for you in your own life. Is there someone who needs to confess? Not just to God, but maybe to the person that you've offended. Or to the person who you know loves you and is sold out to you and can give you the help you need, but you need to say those words out loud before that help can come. Someone who needs to sacrifice. Lay something down. Say, I don't need this anymore because I'm not living the way of the world. I'm living the way of the cross. Is there someone who needs to repent? What a big church word. What in the world does that mean? That just means saying, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm going to commit to change. Is there someone who needs to act in love in a tangible, real way to someone who you may hold most dear but for whom you find it difficult to sacrifice in that real and tangible way? There's two ways of living. There's the way of the world and there's the way of the cross. And those who want to live this way, Jesus says, I just want to warn you. I'm going to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we pray that you would give us the strength to make the hard decisions that we often need to make in our life that we would not only, Lord, be blessed with the wisdom to know what they are, but also, Lord, the courage to, to act and to do. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to head with you to Jerusalem, that for each and every one of us, if there is something that sticks in our hearts and our minds, Lord, would you protect us from walking away again? Would you lead us, Lord, to do what maybe we haven't been willing to do before? To let go of the way we are heading right now. And to instead begin to walk the way of the cross. Lord, remind us, even as we prepare for the celebration of Easter, remind us of what Good Friday means. Remind us that there is no life in you, life with you, that can avoid the cross that you bore. And that you are in fact, Lord, you are in fact Savior. You are in fact declared worthy of the power and glory of the Father because of your willingness to endure this on our behalf. 
Help us, Lord, to follow you wherever you would take us. We want to walk with you all the way to Jerusalem. Amen.